You're listening to the Citrus Church Podcast. Now, here's the message. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series, and I'm looking forward to it because it's going to invite us into one of the stories, one of the books of the Bible that is one of the core places and core stories, not just of the Old Testament and not just of the New Testament, but of the life of faith in the church in general. And it's the book of Exodus. And Exodus is probably some of the most familiar stories from the Old Testament um, about the, the Hebrews and their enslavement in Egypt and um, them telling you know, the Pharaoh to let my people go. And of course, you know, going through the Red Sea and wandering in the wilderness, uh, setting up their first worship site. We, you know, we pull a trailer to set up and they uh, pitched a tent, right? So it's some of the core foundational stories, but it's also some of the core foundational themes and the idea that we serve a God who seeks to liberate God's people from anything and everything that might enslave us. And beyond that, that God seeks to liberate the world from all those things inside and outside of us that would seek to keep us trapped in, in sin and injustice and in oppression. So in a lot of ways, these stories that we're going to be looking at together over the next couple of weeks are, are the ones that will lay the groundwork for the life of faith overall. Uh, and of course, to do that, we're going to look at the book of Exodus. And one of the things that really marks the book of Exodus is not so much their time spent in Egypt, but the long period of time after that, where the Hebrews would be wandering in the desert. Uh, and so as they wandered in the desert, it was this journey from uh, what we would see now as kind of the, the area of Egypt, and they would wander through uh, the Sinai Peninsula up to the area of Palestine. Uh, Palestine, of course, would become the promised land. And this would be a short journey if they just kind of followed the natural route, but God took them through the Sinai Desert and through this 40 years of wandering because there were some things that God wanted them to learn and some um, ways of worship that they had to put together. And the scripture even tells us that if God took them the short way, they would face war and battles and they would certainly give up and go back to Egypt. It's an interesting lesson in there that it was better for them to wander in the desert for a long period of time than to go the shorter, quicker route. I think that's still true for us today sometimes too. But there's this idea of wilderness, wilderness. And when the term wilderness is used in the Bible, it's considered to be a dry place, a desert. And it represents a natural environment that is beyond the reach of civilization. People don't really live there. It's uninhabited. And when the Bible speaks of it, it speaks of, of a land inhabited by jackals and wild animals and things. And if there are people, they're things and people that are uncontrolled and uncivilized and wild. And maybe that sounds exciting, but the wilderness was really a place of fear. It was a place people didn't go willingly. You know, if we wanted to sum up everything about the wilderness into one word, it would be this, disorder. Disorder. Capital D-I-S, order. The opposite of things that were ordered. The opposite of civilized. The wilderness was a place of disorder, and, and God has them wandering through this place of disorder for 40 years. But God's also with them during that period. Now, now when we think about the wilderness that they walk through, this is a picture of 
the the Judean wilderness, the, the the wilderness of Sinai. Actually, I think this is the Judean wilderness. But I think this is oftentimes what we think about when we think about the wilderness. You know, we think about a desert and a place where maybe you can see a little path up there. <laughs> As Bob Ross would say, I don't see any happy trees in that area. Right? There's not much there. There's not much to do. It's exposed. This is a place that I look at and I see uh, just disorder if we were to be there. But I also want to remind us that wilderness can look like this. With all the order that we can see in the lives and the houses and the apartments and the condos around us, there can still be a good bit of disorder in a place like this too. Isn't that right? Just because things look nice on the outside doesn't mean that everything's together on the inside. And so we can be in a place like this and experience disorder. And I know a lot of people are experiencing that in this season because of the changes with school, if you have kids, or the changes with jobs, or just the reality of being isolated, perhaps because of age or because of a medical condition. Right? There's a lot of disorder here. In the same way, too, disorder and chaos can be felt by so many of us in this season because aside from just a place, whether a desert or a suburb, we can feel that inside. We can feel these wilderness seasons, these seasons when things are just out of order. Those can be places that we feel emotionally and spiritually, even if we're not there, maybe physically and geographically, right? These periods of isolation. These prolonged times in the wilderness, or as the Bible called it, the great wilderness, are important. And before we just decide that we want to get out of these places and escape, which isn't really a bad idea, what I want to do is to look at the ways that God formed the people of God while they were in these difficult places. It's been said before that the people of God grew more and were closer to God in the wilderness and it was only when they got to the promised land that they forgot the God who rescued them and that they got off track because everything was good finally. And so over this next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about through the wilderness and how we can learn something from those original God wanders in the desert and what lessons God might be wanting to teach us in this season. And I just want to clarify again that that God doesn't bring things like the virus or isolation. Um, God doesn't place things, these things upon us in a manipulative way so that we'll grow. I mean, that's just, that's just not the way that God works. Instead, we see the example of a God who works in the midst of a challenging surrounding and circumstances to draw people closer to God's self. The, the glimpse of hope that we have is that in the barren wilderness of the desert— the Lord cultivates the people. And I think that'll be true for us too as we journey together over these next four weeks through the wilderness. So I want to give us some background as we get started and as we begin to think about this. Now, if you remember, the people of God were enslaved in Egypt uh, for about 400 years. And God called Moses, someone who didn't feel that he had the gifts and abilities and the ability to speak well, God called Moses to be the one to go and to speak to Pharaoh and to say, uh, let my people go. And of course, we, we know of the plagues and those kinds of things that came. So as we build up to today's story, it's come to the point where Moses has reasoned and tried to 
rationalize with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has just hardened his heart over and over and over again. And God has sent plagues and, and signs and, and, and wonders to try to wake Pharaoh up to say, I know that you think you're in charge of things, but I'm in charge of things, and you need to let these people go about their own way. And Pharaoh just will not have it. So the Lord finally says, okay, we're going to just go. And he was going to allow Pharaoh to release the people and to essentially change his heart so that they could leave. And so on the night before that they were supposed to leave, they have some specific instructions of how they're supposed to have their meal. And this would eventually become known as Passover. And this is the story of the first Passover. And I'll give you fair warning it's a little graphic, um, and it's challenging for us in a world and culture today. So you'll see why, but take a listen to the scripture for today. Hi, we're the Jardinos. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Dave. And we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month will be the first month. It will be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole Israelite community, on the tenth day of this month, they must take a lamb for each household, a lamb per house. If a household is too small for a lamb, it should share one with a neighbor nearby. You should divide the lamb in proportion to the number of people who will be eating it. Your lamb should be a flawless year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You should keep close watch over it until the fourteenth day of this month. At twilight on that day, the whole assembled Israelite community should slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and on the beam over the door of the houses in which they are eating. That same night, they should eat the meat roasted over the fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over fire with its head, legs, and internal organs. Don't let any of it remain until morning and burn any of it left over in the morning. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet and your walking stick in your hand. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'll strike down every oldest child in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. I'll impose judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be your sign on the houses where you live. Whenever I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day will be a day of remembering for you. You will observe it as a festival to the Lord. You will observe it in every generation as a regulation for all time. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Tiffany. And um, yeah, that's a tough story, isn't it? And this is where we get the term Passover because the Lord passed over those doorposts uh, with the blood on them. And this is hard for us in our senses and in the way that we buy meat, quite frankly, uh, nowadays, to, to really get our head around this idea. But I want to lift up a couple of points. First, that the idea of sacrifice was something that was kind of normal back then, and even though it's, it's different and it's going to be understood differently in the progress of time, this was kind of a normal part of the custom and ritual. Uh, it was also a lot more farm-to-table, as you can see back then, and so some of the trouble that we have with this story is just our distance from the farm to the table. 
but the other point here that I want to make is that one of the things that God is trying to do is to establish a ritual, to establish a practice that would allow them each year to remember something significant. God wanted to make sure that they didn't forget the amazing and the important things that were about to happen. And so God establishes the Passover as a way of helping them to remember and to mark time. Now, that's not so different from how we do things either. We have days and holidays that help us to mark time, whether it's a birthday or whether it's a holiday, whether it's something like July 4th or like Easter. Each of these are intended to help us to remember something important and significant and to not allow our lives to get too far away from those core foundational events in our life, in the life of our world, and in the life of faith. So what's happening here is a reminder to to them to remember that they follow the God who invites them to be transformed, invites them from slavery to freedom, and invites them from oppression to liberation. The God who delivers them to new life. And, And so the hope with Passover and every year is that God's people remember the deliverance. Now, the meal that they talk about here is a, is a fast food meal. Uh, did you catch that? It's, it's a meal to be eaten on the run. And so a lot of the preparations were because they couldn't have a nice sit-down table filled with all the fixings and all the sides and all the condiments that you might want. This was a grab-and-go because they were going to be on the march out of Egypt. They were leaving. Their time of oppression was up. So they're on the go. They've got their shoes on. They've got their staff in hand. And there's a couple of points that I want to highlight here because if we're trying to understand what this story can mean for us today, here's some of the places that can help. Did you catch this part here? In verse 4, it says, If a household is too small for a lamb, it should share a larger house. It should share one with a neighbor nearby. So as we read between the lines, what we see is already God is inviting us to consider our neighbor as ourself. God is inviting those to look around and to say, who doesn't have enough? Who has more than enough? And how might we share a bit of what we have so that someone else can have the same meal and the same experience on the go? In this season, one of the things we've done as a church, and I know many have done, whether organizations or workplaces or just neighbors, is to find a way to say, how can we help those in need? We've tried to think about, of, are you in a place where you can give help? Or are you in a place of where you need help? And that back and forth is what we already begin to see here, where God is teaching them to say, look out for the needs of your neighbor. God is reminding us to care for the margins of society and to pay attention to those edges where oftentimes people who are different than the majority can get pushed. And a reminder to say, they matter too and include them, right? So what do we begin to do with this passage today? One of the core things for us as followers of Jesus to do is to remember that we read the Old Testament as it is, but we also read it in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand this in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. 
And of course, when Jesus found his way to the cross, it was at the time of Passover. And so Jesus becomes the Passover sacrifice lamb, the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And as graphic as this story was, we see that same uh, graphicness, that's a word, in the death of Jesus on the cross. And we also see how the Lord passes over our sins because of our faith in Jesus. And a reminder that he is the one who is risen from the dead and resurrected back to life. And so in Jesus, God is doing the same work of liberating those who are oppressed by sin and injustice and setting us free. But let's get to what is happening in this passage and how we might be able to take something away from this today. This passage here in Exodus 12, 12 struck me because it ends with this idea here that I, and this is God speaking, I'll impose judgment on all the gods of Egypt. God will impose judgment on the gods of Egypt. You notice it's a lowercase g. And when I saw that, I realized that what God is doing here is saying that, that these are the mindsets and the systems and the cultural practices that have been handed down from the ruling authorities. We would just say, these are the way things are in Egypt. We know it's not right. We know it's not ideal. But this is just the way things are, for better or for worse. Take it or leave it. Some are in, some are out, some are enslaved, some are free. And so when we think about this, it's easy for us to read the Old Testament and think about, you know, the gods of Egypt and the Pharaoh and all that kind of thing. But I want us to think a little bit deeper about this as people of the New Testament to recognize that just like they had uh, systems and mindsets and cultural practices back then, we have those same things today. And one of the mindsets and systems of Egypt was the capture and the enslavement of another nation and another race. The gods of Egypt, so to speak, are oppression, injustice, and evil. And so when we think about God desiring to remove these firstborn things, sons, we could think about instead how God desires to remove the mindsets the systems, the practices that are unjust, evil, and oppressive. And so this invites us to think beyond just how Egypt dealt with its people, but how all nations and how all people deal with one another. Remember, this is a story about neighbors and how neighbors interact with each other. We can still see this today. Because we have seen through history where there are beliefs of supremacy, where one nation is better than another, where there are feelings of racial superiority, where there is religious bigotry. All these things are present in the story of Egypt versus the Hebrew people. Supremacy, superiority, and bigotry. And in fact, the history of us as Christians is that even in the times of the Crusades, I've shared this before, Crusaders would often be baptized with their sword in hand, but they would hold the sword out of the water as if to say, all of me serves God except for this sword, which will strike down the infidels and those who are not of our faith. And these are the systems and the mindsets and the way things are that God desires to remove, as we see in the story here. And you know as well as I do that we experience this still today. A national supremacy where we are better than other countries. 
We see this at home where we see uh, a racial superiority that, that whites feel over persons of color. And if you're not sure if that's true or not, just think about how schools are zoned and how some people are zoned into schools and some people who are neighbors just next door are zoned into other schools. And we'll be reminded that racial superiority still exists in our country and in our county. We see this in religious intolerances that we have when we insist that one religion ought to have preference in society over another. And that happens all the time where because we are Christians, we have a preference over other faiths. So the question that the scripture asks of us is what is the sacrifice that we can offer back to God? What is the sacrifice that we can put over the doorframe of our house? And what this does is it asks us, what are the little g gods that are at work in the world today? In this world, in this country, in our state, and in my life, and in your life. In what ways are we just blindly accepting that that's just the way things are? I know it's oppressive. I I know it's unjust. We could think internally. I know that this isn't something about how I react or how I respond or, or one of the ways that I behave that, that God likes, but it's just the way things are, and I don't know if I can change it. This passage invites us to think about what is a sacrifice. A sacrifice is something that we give up, that is not easy for us to do. The offering that God asked of them, the, the goat, was something that was significant and costly. It would cost them something to give up. Pushing back against the way things are in us and in the world is costly to us. It might cost us friends and family who disagree with us. It might cause us to rock the boat and to upset people. But these are the things that are pleasing to God because what they are doing is they are helping to establish the order in the disorder. In this time of wilderness where things are in disorder and chaos, God is always seeking to bring order. We see it in the beginning of the Bible when God hovers over the chaos and creates order. So it's good for us to identify and to become aware of these things in our life and to actively work to root them out. And of course, this comes up in our vows of baptism. As a United Methodist Church, one of the things that we do when we baptize is we kind of have a a liturgy, some words that we speak about our profession of faith. Um, and if it's a child, it's uh, the parents who are speaking these on their behalf. And so these are one of the parts of the vows of baptism. Of course, we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, but we also agree to accept the freedom and the power that God gives you to resist evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. And in baptism, we're making a commitment to say this will be an uncomfortable work And it might disrupt the way things are, but I will commit my life as a follower of Jesus Christ to resisting evil and injustice and oppression, whether I see those things in myself and when I see them in the world. And so this is the work in the wilderness that becomes pleasing to God. When we take this up as our mantle and as our call, I wonder what injustices or evil or oppression comes to mind to you? 
what comes to mind in you. And I want to invite you to ask God to give you a vision and to speak to you just as God spoke to Moses about how you might impact those. The, the Lord is calling us out of these systems, but I want to remind us that we are not in the promised land yet. And that like these original desert wanderers, it's going to take us a little while to get there. Remember that the Hebrews wandered for a while. And remember that the wilderness is not an easy place to be. Though God brings order, there is still much that is a disorder around us. But that the wilderness can also be a place of deep growth with God and with each other. That in this dry and barren land, God was and is and will always be cultivating God's people. So I want to invite you to think about what would be the sacrifice that you would paint over your door. Right? I'm inviting us to think beyond just kind of that blood offering that we initially heard about. Maybe the sign over your door would say, justice for the poor, or, or housing for the homeless, or hope for the hurting, community for the isolated, inclusion for the excluded. What are the sacrifices that we would put over our door that we feel God calling us to? So think about internally and think about externally. Because these are the things that God has called us to. These are the things that are costly to us because they, they call us to live with our whole self and our full reliance on God. But these are the things that are pleasing to God and work to bring God's kingdom here on earth. Thanks for listening. Make sure to visit our website, citruschurch.org. If you found refreshments in this message, share it with a friend. And hey, God loves you.